Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, when he said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. In other words, the, the author is saying, the prophet was saying, because of sin that resides within us, it causes us to go astray. It causes us to go away from what is right, from God, from what is true, from what is holy to that which is not. Uh, sin clouds our minds and distorts our understanding and how things really ought to be. When we're in sin, it causes us to get off track and go far away from God and far away from what God's original intention for us is. That's what sin ultimately does. And the truth of the matter is, this is true not only for unbelievers, but it's true for believers as well. Look, I don't know about you, but I know that the word of God says that as a believer in Jesus Christ, that God through his death, burial, and resurrection has broken the bond between me and sin, right? Amen? It's broken. But I gotta tell you, I still sin. Okay, in this flesh, there is still sin until I am glorified with Christ. I will still struggle with sin, which means, and see if you track with me on this, every morning I wake up, there is a propensity for me to go astray in my own walk with God. There's, do you guys ever feel that, a little propensity there? One of my um, uh, college or seminary professor said this one time. He says, you know, it is true. God has called us to be living sacrifices. The problem with a living sacrifice is we have the propensity to crawl off the altar. That's what a living sacrifice likes to do. He doesn't like to be there. And so it's true. We have a propensity to be able to stray from God. So it's important for all of us to continually be in the word of God because what does the word of God do? It brings us back. It brings us back from where we ultimately strayed from. And so that's how God uses the word. And that's how we've tried to, that's really been the philosophy for my preaching ministry here over the last decade at Celebration Baptist Church is to bring us back to God's ideal, to set us straight, to understand what he wants from us. This was true, I, or became evident, I think, a couple of years ago when we preached a series on marriage. And there, many of us, if we were really honest, when we were first going into the series, and we were asked, hey, what's the purpose of marriage? Most of us would say, well, the ultimate purpose of marriage is for us to be happy. That's why God gave us marriage. And, uh, and I would say, well, how is that working for you, right? And so people would sit back and go, well, I don't know. I think that's what it is. But as we begin to search the scriptures, we begin to find what God's original purpose for it was, its intent. And it wasn't for us per se, to be happy, even though I'm sure that that's a byproduct of what God would have for us, but instead is rather to demonstrate an unbreakable bond between Christ and his church. A husband and wife live out a love relationship as Christ loves the church. We're supposed to picture how that is. And once we understood that, then for many of us, it helped us to better understand how this marriage thing is supposed to be lived out. Let me give you another example. A couple of years ago, you know, elections have been so exciting over the last several years. And, and, uh, and a lot of Christians were really struggling over the last two periods of elections. And they would sit there and go, listen, who are we supposed to elect? I, truth is, I, I don't really agree with any of the people who are up for election. What do I do? And many of the Christians were saying, well, listen, I need to vote for somebody. So I'm going to vote for somebody who really cares for the things that I care about. And most Christians that I talked to were like, what's important to me is the economy. Do you remember this? Who's, whoever's not going to tank the economy more than it's tanked, that's who we want to be a believer. So God leading us to the scriptures again and trying to lead you back, we tried to find out what was God's original intention for government. And by going back, we found out that God had never intended the government to really do anything with 
with, um, with the economy. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be kind of a good thing? All right, just don't touch the economy. And so God's purpose for, uh, for the government really, we found out, was to restrain evil and to protect those who are innocent. And so by understanding that and understanding what the word's purpose is or God's purpose is for government, we could then be good stewards and vote for the person who was going to uphold God's purposes the best. Okay, does that make sense? And so what we're doing is we're doing the same exact thing today with this particular series. We're getting back to what it is that God expects and requires of a church. That's what we're ultimately trying to do. Now, now, now listen, it's true. If I were to say the word church, we have all different types of ideas. We, we know that. We all know that we disagree or, or at least have different thoughts about what a church is, what a church ought to be. And what a church ought to do. We just are. When, uh, when we have people from all over the country and they come and they come to Yulee, Florida of all places. And we begin to talk. And one of the first things they say is, well, our church did this. And our church did that. And this is what we used to do. And what they're doing is un- unintentionally, they're coming and saying, this is what we think a church ought to be. Why isn't your church doing that? Okay, that's, that's kind of what happens. And everybody goes through that. Everybody feels that. It's not a bad thing. It's just kind of how we address it. But here's what I would suggest. I would suggest the best thing for us then is not for me to define a church, not for you to define a church, not for the church growth experts to define it, and certainly not a lost and dying world to define what a church ought to be, but to allow God through his word to define it so that we understand clearly what it is that he expects from it. And so that's what we're going to do. And as we walk through this series, there are several questions that we're going to want to answer, ask and answer. This is just some of them. The first one today, we're going to look at what is the nature of the church? That is, what is it? What, what is it exactly? How do we get our arms around it? Secondly, what are the marks of a true church? Uh, there are true churches, and there are those that God would not, the word of God would not define as a true church. What is the purpose of the church? That's important. Many churches often lose sight of its purpose. What is a healthy church? Or better yet, is it possible to be a healthy church? Or what makes a healthy church? And finally, who leads the church? And specifically, how does it specifically function within the particular local body? So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look, first of all, today, and we don't have a whole lot of time, but the idea of the nature of the church. What is this thing called church? Now, when I say the word church, I know that in each one of your minds, there's a picture that comes to mind. Now, stop thinking about the car you want or the Jeep you want or the 4 by 4 but let's stop and think just for a moment of the word church. When you hear that word church, everybody thinks usually of something. For some, it's merely a building that they think of. They think of, oh, that beautiful church that we grew up in with this beautiful stained glass windows. Oh, I love that church. They think of the building. For other people, especially Catholics, if you're Roman Catholic here with us, you think more of a church when you hear the word church as a, as a spiritual entity made up of priests and, and bishops and archbishops and a priest that in, in, in have a direct descendant directly from the apostles who dispense the grace of God through the sacraments. And if you are not Roman Catholic, and nor have you ever been, then you have no idea what it is that I just said, all right? Uh, but if you are Roman Catholic or have a background, you have an understanding. When you hear church, you think of that spiritual entity, a hierarchy, hierarchical uh, entity. Um, some people, when they hear the word church, what they do is they believe more in a negative side. They think of a church as really the moral police enforcing their own uh, uh, beliefs on the rest of society, trying to get us all to conform to what the church ultimately wants us to do. And for others, they simply think of a church as a, as a group of people who get together, 
who pray and who read the word of God and kind of do life together. And so these are all different types of ideas. But let me say this. Again, because of all those different ideas, we need the word to define it for us. But may I suggest and be honest, that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Because we can't just look up to Acts chapter 2 and it says the church is and then it defines it perfectly and holistically. Instead, what we have is we have teachings at the church all the way through the New Testament. And in order to really understand what the Bible says about it, you have to, you know, you have to grasp bits and pieces and see how the Bible is using the word and the term church. Now, when we talk about the word church in its simplest understanding, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. It's used some 77 times in the New Testament. And it very simply, in its simplest sense, means a gathering or an assembly. Now, when you think of a gathering or an assembly, what do you think of? Probably something like this. You think a group of people, either a small group or a large group, gathering together at a specific place for a specific time for a specific purpose. And that, that is a pretty good definition of the church. But when we see the word ecclesia used in the Bible, we find out that that's not necessarily what it's speaking of. It actually has a much broader understanding and definition. So what we want to do this morning is we want to see how the word church is used so that we understand what the church is. And so the first thing that we want to look at this morning is this, is the church is described, at least in the word of God, as being invisible and visible. Now, I'm going to use some terms that invisible and visible, that's not the terms that the Bible uses for the church, but those are the words that we use to describe what the Bible is saying about the church. Does that make sense? So we talk about an invisible, invisible church. What's the invisible church? Well, let me tell you what it is not. The invisible church is not the people who slept in this morning and were not able to get to church. That's not the invisible church, right? The invisible church are not people who get angry and cantankerous with the church and angry at the preacher and, and, and they're not there. That's not the in, in, invisible church. And let me tell you what else it is not. This was interesting. A couple months ago, I was up at Target. You know, you, you, I see many of you guys up at Target pushing your buggies. And there I am and, and I'm with, you know, the kids and there's another guy. And, and men, have you ever noticed that when you're just with the kids and the wife's not around that you instantly instantaneously begin to bond with other fathers with no mom there have you ever noticed that you're just like hey man what's up what's up good you surviving yeah i'm good man we're good how's it going oh man i'm hanging in there when's the wife come back not soon enough you know and so you begin to have kind of these conversations and we're we're sitting there and and we're bonding and of course eventually in the conversation comes hey you know are you a church member somewhere i asked him i said where do you are you an active member are you worshiping somewhere at the moment he goes yeah he goes uh, it's a little church down minor road called celebration baptist church he said um, it's right across from the middle school and the high school and i said oh i said i think i know it and uh and 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 it was no i didn't tell him i didn't have the heart to tell him i'm the pastor at celebration baptist church but but the truth is and and, and you know i haven't seen him since but even that is not called the invisible church. That's not what we refer to when we talk. If you are here and you're invisible, I'm so sorry. We love you. Thank you for uh, being here, invisible church man. All right. And so, so that's not what it means. When we're talking specifically about the invisible church, what we're talking about is the spiritual reality that we cannot know with absolute certainty who is a true believer and who is not. We can't just look at somebody and go, man, you're a believer. Or, hey, man, you're definitely not a believer. Now, the Bible says that there are ways of helping us to understand who is in the faith and who is not in the faith. And the Bible calls that fruit or works. By the works are the fruit that we bear. The Bible says a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. A tree is, a tree is known by its fruit. So we can tell sometimes that if a person is living for Jesus, loving for Jesus, loving the church, uh, sharing the gospel, doing these things, a love for God's word in it, those are evidences that a person is ultimately in the faith. 
Sometimes we could look at somebody and go, man, I, you know, I don't see any of these type of fruits. And we might have kind of a, a feeling that maybe they're not a true believer in Jesus Christ, despite their profession. But the truth is, we just absolutely cannot be for certain. That's true for the gentleman in Target. It's true for the people who are sitting next to you. You know, some of you guys sit in the same place every week. I, I love it. It's great. I know who's here and who's not. Some of you mess me up and you sit somewhere else and just throw me off right? Sometimes a visitor sits in your spot. Oh, heaven forbid, right? And so, so, but the truth is you're sitting there and people are worshiping behind you and beside you and you sit there and say hello to them every day. And the truth of the matter is you cannot know for absolute certainty that they're in the faith. You can't know for absolute certainty whether your closest friends are in the faith or whether your children or your family or your husband or your wife is truly in the faith, not with absolute Certainty. Again, there's some ways to know and have a gist of whether they are or not, but there's some ways we just can't possibly know. And so we call it the invisible church. I love what Wayne Grudem says. Wayne Grudem describes or defines the invisible church as the church as God sees it. In other words, the only one that truly sees the invisible church is God. God doesn't ever lose track of his members. Do you understand that? He knows exactly who was born again. He knows exactly who has new life in him. He knows exactly to where his Holy Spirit dwells. And he knows exactly to whom his, his, his son's blood has been applied. He knows all of those things. It's the church that we don't see. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, the Bible says, The Lord knows those who are his. He can see the church. We can't see that invisible church know exactly who are believers and who are not. On the other side, you have the visible church. Now, if the invisible church is, is the church that God sees, then the visible church is the church as we see it. Uh, the, the visible church is this. It's, it's all of those who have publicly, pre, publicly proclaimed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and who show some evidence that they have been regenerated and are seeking to follow Jesus Christ. It's, it's when, when we sit there and we look at the church, we talk about, hey, they're a part of the church. We don't know for sure if they're born again, but visibly from us, they profess to know Christ and they're walking there. Paul uses this, the word church in this particular way in 1 Corinthians 1-2. He says, to the church of God, which is in Corinth. In 1 Thessalonians 1-1, he says, to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, what is Paul saying? Paul knows very clearly that he's writing these letters to this church, but he's writing to the visible church because he knows that not everybody in that church is a true believer. He knows not, not everybody who calls upon, you know, everybody who says that they're believers in Jesus Christ are truly believers in Jesus Christ. But here's the point. He doesn't know. He doesn't sit there and say, hey, John and Sally, hey, this is for you because I know you're real believers. And Jeff and George, I'm sorry, you're, you're, there's no way you're in the faith. So I'm talking to, no, he just writes to the whole church. It is the visible church in which he ultimately writes. Now, what this shows is that there's always been a challenge that the church has faced. From the time of Paul even to, the day, to today, we've had both church members, people in a church that all claim to be believers, and it's been made up of true regenerate believers and those who have never been born again. Now, as you can imagine, that can be a problem. When you have people in a church who have been regenerated, what I mean by that is saved by the grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, they've been given a new heart, they've been given a new spirit, they've given a new wanter for the things of God, but yet there are church members in the same church who that has not happened. They have not been born again. They have not repented of their sins. They have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They have not been changed. All things have not become new, and you have those particular group of people that are trying to navigate and steer the church. Can you see that there's going to be a rub and there's going to be a problem in churches? There's going to be a great deal of problem in churches because of that. So what do we do? Well, 
Let me tell you what we try to do is practically to be able to kind of, you know, keep, keep a handle on this. We have what's called a new members class. The essentials class is what we call it. And what we do is we, we, get the, we get people who want to come and join Celebration and be a part of the church and faith family here. We ask them to go through a certain number of week class. And this is what we do in it. What we do is we, we, we teach them what the church believes. These are, just, these are not open hand, issue, open hand issues. These are closed hand issues, which means this is what we believe is essential. We believe that you are saved by grace through faith alone. We believe in the power of God. Now, listen, let me just suggest this. People freak out about this whole class thing. All right, I'm, just, I'm just telling you. There are people who go, how, how dare you? How dare you make somebody take a class before they become a member of a church? If a person wants to be a member of the church, then just let them be a member of the church. Well, sir, we're trying, ma'am, we're trying to make sure that if they're a member of the church, that we have at least some inkling or idea that they're truly a believer in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be important to be a church member here? To at least, look, not a whole lot of qualifications, just be saved. Are, are y'all with me? And so what happens is we navigate through that. The person begins to sit there and they tell their test. They write out their testimony. This is how I came to faith in Jesus. Okay, great. That's wonderful. You know him. There's even been my brother Scott, right? I hope I can use you, Scott. I didn't ask before. This, I can't abandon now, brother. You're going down, all right? And so, so what happens is Scott goes through the new members class, and, and God ends up using that. Isn't this correct? Uh, he goes through the class, and he gets to the testimony, and basically there is no testimony. I'm not a believer in Jesus Christ. I, I, don't, I don't know him. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to navigate people, not to hurt them, but to at least sit there and know that for the most part, the ones who call themselves members of a local body church who are coming and committing in that, uh, that covenant community at least know Jesus. But can I suggest something to you? Well, we don't always. Some of them slipped through. Scott, Scott slipped through. He, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, Scott came to faith in Jesus Christ. He gave his heart to Christ. He, he repented of his sins. He was born again. But let me ask you, even with that, certainly there are people in our membership that even go through the entire class that the Bible at least says is probably not truly born again. Guess what? I don't know who that is. You don't know who that ultimately is. In fact, we can't know who that is. Only God can know. But we have to do our best to try to make sure that people understand what it means to be a part of God's covenant community. Now, let me suggest some things. I believe that, that there's a great danger in teaching about this universe, excuse me, uh, these churches, this visible and invisible church. Because what God doesn't want us to do is be the invisible, invisible church police, okay? He doesn't want us to go around as sin sniffers. He doesn't want you in your heart of hearts, and this happens. People begin to learn about the word of God. They get on fire for word of God. Then they go and they start looking and sizing people up, and they go, mm, I don't know if they're saved. Have you talked with him? Are you sure about his or her salvation? Because all I know is I'm fired up for Jesus, and they don't seem to be as fired up for Jesus. And then I say to them, yeah, but what about like two weeks ago? You know, you weren't even in the church, but now you're in the church. How does all this stuff work? So we don't want to become sin sniffers towards each other. This is one thing that Calvin said that we had to be extremely careful of. He said, as we look to each other, we should make charitable judgments towards each other in the church. In other words, when somebody says, Here, here's, here's what it is, you say that you're born again. You say that you, and we know that you know what the gospel is, that you've repented of your sin and placed your faith completely in the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's some evidence that you're at least attempting to walk to Jesus. Guess what? We accept you as a brother and sister in Christ. We're, we're going to go with that. Now, here's what happens through all of that. Sometimes through time, what is proven is that person walking away and falling away from the faith oftentimes demonstrates that they were never truly in the faith at all. And sometimes we have to work with really difficult situations here. 
as church members, you know, sometimes people, there has to be church discipline. And sometimes we have to go to each other in love. Let me, let me, let me make sure I understand, you, this is completely clear. That doesn't mean that we don't approach each other in love and sometimes question somebody if they're truly in the faith or not. Do, do you understand? Sometimes on our heart of hearts, we have a family member, friend, or even somebody here in this church family. And isn't there times that you can be around them and the life that they are living is so completely drastically different than the, law, than, than the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ that sometimes in your heart of hearts, you're concerned for them and you're worried for them. And they sit back and th there seems to be no desire for God, no desire, no love for God's church, no love to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, no desire to see God glorified. They don't see any of those. I think as brothers and, and sisters in Jesus Christ that there are times in love that we need to go to our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, my friend, I'm concerned for you. Would you agree on that? Brother, uh, brother I'm, I'm concerned for you for where you are with God. And then there are some times, and we're going to talk about this later in our series, there are times even for church discipline. And the Bible will say, people will say today, that's not right. But the Bible says that then when there are people who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ, yet they live completely contrary to the truth of that word and bring condemnation down at the church, you have to begin a process called church discipline with the hope of restoring that believer to their faith. But, or to true faith. And so those are the kind of ideas that we talk about. But you have to be very careful with this who's saved and who's not. In fact, in, in, in Jesus tells the parable, the parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew chapter 13 and verses 24 through 30 says, be very careful. And Jesus tells this parable, and this is what he says. He says, listen, his servants went out, they sowed the wheat, and the wheat began to grow. And then while they were asleep, the enemies end up coming into that field, and they begin to plant and begin to put in all kinds of tares within that wheat. Well, the workers go out, and they see all these tares sown amongst the wheat, and they come back to the master, and they go, how did this happen? There's tares amongst the wheat. What, what's going on? And he says, while we were asleep, while you were asleep, the enemy came in and, and began to sow those tares amongst the wheat. And so the workers say, what should we do? Should we tear them up? Should we tear all those things up and expose them for what they are? And he says, no, 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 you leave them. He says, because what you can do is trying to pull out those tares, you can end up doing a lot of damage to those who are truly wheat. And so what he says is, he says, don't worry about it, because at the end of the day, that which was in the darkness will come to the light. He says, I will expose, because I know who is in and who is out. I will separate the wheat from the tares. And so in the church, just understand this, there's always going to be these things, but there's a danger. But can I also suggest to you this morning that there's also some encouragement? This truth was actually a great encouragement in my life. You guys know that, uh, hey, listen, uh, I haven't always been at the easiest, nicest, most loving churches like this one. Uh, I haven't always been in a church that everybody in the church like this one loves me so much. All right. I know it's hard for you to believe. Uh, but in some of these churches, you know that I've struggled. Every minister uh, that's ever been in a church has struggled. And, um, and, and, and so what has happened is, and I remember being at my lowest point I think I've ever been in ministry. And somebody sat there and they said, well, what's wrong? And I said, here's what amazes me. It is beyond my imagination how God's people have such an ability to be some of the cruelest, meanest people I've ever met in my life. How are they capable of such wickedness and anger and resentment and hurt? How can they, how can they get to that particular point? And I had a wise old preacher come over to me, put his arm around me, and he said, brother, you're missing something. I said, what is that? And he says, not everybody who's a part of the church is the church. Do you understand that? Not everybody who's a part of the visible church is the true invisible church. 
There are tears even amongst the church, and I think some of the chaos and the problems and things, but I even encourage that to you. Maybe you're a person who's been hurt in a church or hurt by another Christian. Well, I want to let you know, sometimes Christians, we can get it wrong, and we do get it wrong. I get it wrong. And we need to be forgiven, and we need to be restored. But there are sometimes people do things under the name of Jesus Christ that's not godly, and they're not a part of the kingdom of God at all. And that's a great encouragement to me to know that, that those who are of God are going to love those who are of God. Well, let me show you this second thing. The church is also, it's, it's not only uh, invisible and visible, but the Bible also speaks of it as being local and universal. Local and universal. Sometimes the Bible describes a church and uses it to describe a very small group of people. For example, Romans 16, 5, Paul gives a list of personal greetings, and he says in those greetings, greet also the church in their house. It was that small little house church. He identifies a small group there as well. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul mentions to Aquila and Prisca, he says, where a part of a church, he says, is in their house. So sometimes the Bible, when it's speaking of it, it's speaking of a small local church, a small group of believers in a local town or a local place meeting within a home. Other times the Bible uses the word church, and you'll see this at places like Acts chapter 9, verse 31. There, when he speaks of the church, he's speaking of a lot of different churches in one particular city or one particular region. For example, Acts chapter 9, verse 31, Luke writes, So the church, see, he says singular, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. He says one church, but it's really a lot of different churches in a particular area. And he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, Paul writes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, he says Paul writes to the church of the Thessalonians. So here is, he calls it one church because it's in one particular area. So that's kind of that local church idea, but then there's also the universal. He says that he uses the universal idea in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, what I read in the beginning. Listen to this. It says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You guys got that? Now, which church does he love? I know it's this one, isn't it? It's Celebration Baptist Church. That's the one that he loves. He can't possibly love, you know, the other church, you know. It's our church that he loves. It's our church that he gave his life for. Is that correct? No. He's talking about the universal church. He's talking about the church everywhere of all times. That's the universal church. And so we have these two kind of concepts. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, he says again, Paul writes, God is appointed in the church, singular, universal, First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. In both of these passages, Paul is speaking not of an individual church, but a church as a whole, the universal church. So you have both. Now, what's so significant about that? What's significant about knowing that sometimes the Bible talks about a church as this small kind of local group of believers in a particular area? What's so significant in that? Well, let me suggest this. What it would at least assume is that you and I are a part of it, that you and I are a part of a local church. Now listen, people will say all the time, you don't have to go to church to be a believer. I, anybody ever hear that before? Don't got to be a church to be a believer, right? And, and Which is true because you can go to church and not be a believer, right? And that's usually the argument too. And it's funny when people give me these arguments because it's as though I've never heard that argument. Like I'm stumped. <gasps> never heard that before, really? You don't have to go to church to be a believer. That's, that's amazing insight. That's incredible, you know? And so they're using it, though, to be able to dissuade. Let, let, let me just at least say this. I've never known a born-again, blood-washed Christian who is doing anything for the gospel and the propagation of the gospel who has ever said that particular phrase. Let me just say that. 
who's been walking with God, who's been sharing with God, and sat back and said, well, you don't really have to go to church to be a believer. No, okay. So let's just say for the sake of an argument, you don't have to go to church to be a believer. Look, everybody sigh and feel good, all right? Oh, good. I don't have to come to be a believer in Jesus Christ. But I will tell you this, that the only way to be an obedient believer in Jesus Christ is to be a part of a local body. You cannot do and live out the Christian life apart from being within a local church. Let me just give you a couple examples. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, he says, And let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. That's a command of God. He says, Don't neglect, as some do, and not coming together on a regular, consistent basis to be able to do what? Encourage each other, to love each other, to minister to each other. How in the world do you do that if you're not a part of a local body? You can't do that if you're not a part of a local body. Second, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let me ask you this question. Here's a command. Submit to the spiritual leadership in a church. How can you submit to a spiritual leadership of a church if you're not part of a local church? Are you all tracking with me? You can't be obedient to the command of God. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 25. What then, brother, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. The Bible says that he has gifted you and I with different gifts, abilities, talents, monies, and times to pour into each other, to build up, and to be able to edify the church of God. How can you do that if you're not a part of a local church? Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if any is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Again, not to try to, uh, you know, try to make this more than it is, but the truth of the matter is it's pretty big. How do you encourage each other, and how do you bear one another's burdens if you're not in the fellowship of a local body of believers? The truth is you can't. You cannot be an obedient believer and not be plugged in to a local church. That's simple. Now, here's the other thing. What's the significance about the universal church? Here's what it is. Sometimes people get so far, look, I want people to love their church. I want them to love Celebration Baptist Church. I want you guys to sit there and go, man, that's my church. That's why we got you t-shirts, all right, because we want you to love your church. But at the same exact time, guess what? It ain't all about just what happens here. And that's what happens with churches. Sometimes they go around, and the only thing they're interested in is their church. Did you know that God is very interested in every single one of you? He's interested in your life. He knows you. He knows the very number of hairs that are on your head. He knows exactly when you were born. He knows exactly how many days you will live. He knows when you will breathe your last breath. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. All of these things are absolutely true, but he doesn't just care for you. It's not just us four and no more. Did you know that God is not just doing a lot of things in the individual lives of believers here, but he's doing millions and billions and trillions of things in millions of churches all around the world? You know what it reminds us of? Is all this is bigger than me. My God is bigger than me. My God is bigger than how I see him. He is doing all this for his glory. This is not about me. This is not about my glory. It's about his glory and his will is being done. So those are the applications. Let me end with this last thing. And I know the most exciting part of this whole sermon is the phrase that I just used, let me end with this. So let me go ahead and just try to stir some of you out of your sleepy slumber. And let me see if we can close with something that I think that will be helpful. 
The Bible also describes not only in those ways of being visible and invisible and being local and being universal, but the Bible also really uses metaphors, a series of metaphors, to describe what the church is like, to help us understand how it's not only supposed to function within itself and relate to each other, you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ, but also how we relate to God. Here's some of those metaphors. Number one, uh, he talks about the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 27, Paul describes the church as this big, giant body, okay? This big, giant body, and he says, some are noses, some are ears, some are lips, some are receding hairlines, uh, some, thank you, uh, some are feet, some are knees, some are elbows, some are whatever, okay? Some is the heart. We, we've got all these different parts, and in Jesus' whole point of saying that is saying, hey, listen, we're all one body, we're all together, and the only way to properly function is to function together and have every single part doing what its part is supposed to be doing, right? I had my gallbladder out a couple of years ago. Bad year, by the way, for surgeries. Never had any. Then this one year, man, I was like dropping like flies, all right? Next surgery, next thing I know, oh, my heart! I go down, I go down to the, I'm all bent over. My wife in her loving, caring way, she goes, are you okay? I said, yeah, but I think it's my heart. She's like, well, do you need me to drive you to the hospital? No, I'm fine, honey. It's my heart. I'm fine. So I drive, you know, to the place and you get, you know, you get to the little walking clinic thing because you don't want to pay the emergency room bill. So you go there and you wait for a little while and they go, so it's your heart after 35 minutes and you're like, yeah, I don't know. It's just painful in here. And they're like, oh, we can't see you. You got to go to the emergency room. Well, thank you very much. So you get down to the emergency room and you sit there and they go, oh, please come back. And they hook everything up and they're like, it's not your heart. Oh, good. It's your gallbladder. And my gallbladder they go, yeah, it's your gallbladder. It's, it's, man, it's just, it's just messing you up. You're throwing up. You're doing all these things. You guys have probably had this before, right? That you can't eat Oreo cookies anymore, which is the worst thing in the world. And so, so I couldn't eat them. And so I go in there, and as I'm, as I'm in there, they go, yeah, it's only working 7%. And he goes, and so what it's doing is causing havoc in the rest of the body because it's not functioning correctly. Just simple, simple picture, simple picture of the body of Christ. If we're not all, listen, God has given each and every one of you unique gifts, abilities, talents, finances, time, all these different things. And as a body here locally, we have to be using them to build up and edify the body. Listen to me, please, please look up here. If you're not functioning in that way, if you're not working in that way, listen to me, the whole body does not function the way that it ought to be. That's one of the key teachings that he's trying to teach us. Other places, the Bible calls it uh, the church as the bride of Christ. We see that in Ephesians chapter 5. And we see that relationship. In other places, for example, um, in, uh, in John 15, 5, the Bible describes uh, us and gives the metaphor of us being branches connected to a vine. Uh, sometimes it speaks of the church as a field of crops in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9. Sometimes it's a building in 1 Corinthians 3, 9. Sometimes it's a harvest in Matthew chapter 13, 1 through 13. Now listen, all of these metaphors is to show you and I how the church is supposed to be functioning, how it is and what it's like, and it tells us something about it. For example, when the Bible says that we're all one body, it means that we're dependent on each other. We all need each other. When the Bible talks about the church as being vines uh, or being branches into a vine, it shows us that we can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. That we are completely dependent on him, not only in salvation, but also the ability to live out the Christian life in which God has called us to live. When we look at the other things and we think of, we think of the field of crops, it reminds us that we as a church are continuing to spiritually grow every day. 
We're not supposed to backslide. We're supposed to continue to grow in our faith. When we talk about the building, it reminds us that we are surely founded upon, upon uh, the, the, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Uh, when we begin to talk about, again, the harvest, it reminds us that there's more of the church still out there who has not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ. That the fields are ripe for harvest. It's reminding us of who we are and what the church is ultimately like. Now, one of my favorite metaphors, and yours is probably too, is the fact that the Bible pictures the church as a family. Isn't that, isn't that nice? Doesn't it just kind of give you some warm fuzzies? And it's interesting because, you know, we've had people, you know, through the years that, you know, kind of come and go and things like that. And it's okay. Not all churches are for everybody. But one thing that you hear, no matter what church I've been in, that ain't a family. That ain't a family. I need to find a church with a family. And it's funny because as a pastor, I like to ask questions. And uh, I don't know, school maybe taught me this, I don't know, but ask questions. And I'm like, well, what do you mean by a family? And then when you really listen to them, this is really what they're looking for. They're not looking for a family. They're looking for a Hyatt. They're looking for a Hilton. That's really what they're looking for, all right? And what they're looking for is they're like, I'm looking for somebody who respects me. You know how you go to the, you know, you go to the hotel? It's, it's lovely, is it not? And you go to the hotel, hello, sir, it's so good to have you here. How are you? Can I help your bags? Can you do these things? And I'm always like, no, don't touch them because I'll have to tip you, right? And so you, so you grab them and you, and you go upstairs and you go in, everything is so nice and all the linens, the bed is made. And you get in there and, and I have to pull up those sheets, you know? And it's okay for me to pull all the sheets and make them crazy because I ain't making it in the morning. Morning, right? And so you should, and then somebody comes in and you leave and you can tell them, I want you to come in my room or not come in my room. And then they come in and they clean up all your slobbery and you're done with that. And this is awesome. This is amazing. And that's what some people say. They think of a family and they're really sitting there going, no, I want people to patronize me, to be there for me, to help me, to serve me. But that's really, look, I don't know what your view of family is, but that ain't a picture of my family. Okay, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to, listen, I think when we, sit, when we sit there, when I first read this, I thought, okay, Norman Rockwell. Norman Rockwell, older lady, grandmother, whatever it is, serving turkey at Thanksgiving dinner. Everybody seems to be okay. I'll tell you what, that Norman Rockwell is full of baloney. I'll tell you that much right now, all right? If that's what family is, man, I got ripped, okay? And so did you, all right? Because here's the deal. That's not what Thanksgiving looks like at my house. It's not what dinner looks at my house. I mean, I got, I love my children, and they are wonderful, and they are incredible, but it is a constant, hey, sit up, get your feet off the table, man, what's going on? Hey, use a fork. Hey, quit, 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 quit messing with your sister. Would you please get, would you please sit down and quit standing next to the table? Would you do this? Look, I understand, I'm, look, we're not a good family. I get it, but this is what it looks like, right? And I'll tell you what, in my family, as we're navigating through this, it's none of this, hey, mommy and daddy serve me thing. Hey, we're done. Clean off the plates. I need you to vacuum. I need you to wipe things down. Here's the thing. If you don't feel like a church is a family, do something. That's what makes you feel like family. Boy, now we're starting to meddle, aren't we? Oh, here we are. Look, and it's not just true for the immediate family. It's true for the expanded family. And I've got my brother and sister-in-law here, and, and I have to really tread lightly, but I think he understands what I mean. It is not the most relaxing thing to get the whole extended family together. Okay, Billy Ray's kind of like my, you know, hey, buddy, how you doing? Okay, let's stick together, man. We can make this, right? And so before you go, have you ever had this? Before you go, it's like the, the, all the women know exactly what's going on. Somebody's upset with somebody. Don't mention something. Don't do this. Dad's in a whole thing. Oh, don't mess, don't mess with your mother, right? And, just, and everybody's kind of on edge, and you all walk in. Hi, everybody. How's it going? Don't mention that. Oh, my goodness. And there's tension. 
is anybody else like this or is it just us? And you're like, it's family, but you just know. And, and you know, I just sit back and you're just eating. You're like, man, something's going to blow. I know it. Some, something's, something's about to give in just a minute. Somebody's going to lose their ever-loving mind. Somebody's head, his head's going to explode. I know it. I'm watching. Hey, Billy Ray, look at him. His head's going to explode. Do you see that? Something's going to happen. Third, World War III is about to happen here. And the truth is, is this is how we kind of look at this. And this is brothers and sisters. And we don't really get along. But you know what's so weird is, is there is something about that relationship that as weird as it is, it's like you still keep showing up again. <laughs> are, are you guys kind of with me? Oh, gosh, we got it again. Let's go. Well, nobody's making you go, but it's just kind of like this inner compulsion. That's just kind of, oh, let's go. You know, and next thing you know, you're there, and here we are again. What, what, what's happening? And the truth is, if you're really, really honest, if they weren't family members, you probably would not be friends with them. You, you know it. You're like, I, these are the worst friends in the world. Family's the worst friends in the world. I don't have anything in common with them, you know? I mean, it's just, it's just a mess. And so, so what, how do you navigate through this? Let me, let me just tell you about my sister just for a minute. My sister, Wendy, some of you don't even know I have a sister. I've got to start talking about her more. And um, my sister, Wendy, um, she was tough, dude. I mean, just tough. she's still tough today. I mean, she's like this tall, and... Uh, she could take it. I mean, that's, that's all there is to it. She could take it. And so when we were growing up, uh, you know, we were regular brother and sister. And I know, forget Norman Rockwell. That's just not the way we were. And so I, my bedroom was on the other side of the living room. And her room kind of was in between. And we had this hallway that went down. And so what she would do is she would hear me come. And she would jump in the hallway, put her hands up on the, on the hallway. And then as I tried to pass by, she would kick the stuff out of me unless I paid a toll. <laughs> she was the troll who I had to pay the toll. And so, so she wouldn't let me buy, and she would just beat the stuff out of me. And I'm telling, I mean, this, you understand why I am the way that I am, uh, right? And so we, we would, I mean, we would just, I mean, beat the snot out of each other. And we don't allow our kids to do that, praise God. But for whatever reason, we did, man. We just found a way. We were just more wicked or something. And I remember sitting there, and I mean, we would sit there, I hate you, I hate you back, you know. And so I, I went to school, I remember one day, and the only thing worse than the wrath of my sister was the wrath of a set of twins, two blonde-haired twins, known as Tina and Terry. And... Yeah, they weren't even boys. They were girls. That's what's so sad about Tina. Tina and Terry. I wish they were men. It would make their story better, but uh, at least from my standpoint. But every time, and you guys don't know this. I'll bring pictures someday. But when I was a little kid, I had hair. Okay, so that's first thing you need to know. And that hair was obnoxious. Okay, it was rat's nest. Picture rat's nest. Huge, blonde, curly hair. We're talking 70s. Okay, so you know, unkept, unwhatever. Just crazy hair all over the place. And it was like a, it was like a mop. So... They would call me little moppy head kid, you know, like that. And so they would be like, okay, we get off the bus, and it's about half mile to our house, and I would be the first one to get off, and I would begin to run because they would scream, moppy head kid, we're going to kill you. And so I would run, and I'm dropping stuff, and I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, pick it up later. And I'm, I'm, you know, and you sit there, and I'm almost to the house. I'm almost ready to be able to get into the house. And Tina or Tara couldn't tell, twins, identical twins, and, and, and they tackle me, and they start beating the mess out of me. And, and I'm sitting there. And, just, and I do what any guy would do. I just cover and just pray to God that the rapture comes and gets me out of this. And just have just, you know, it's like a bear attack. Just cover your face, not the face. And so I'm sitting there. And then all of a sudden as I'm sitting there, out of nowhere, I hear this, ah, oh, ow, oh, yeah, oh, and all these expletives. And when the dust settles, I look, and there's my sister <laughs> with a broomstick <laughs> just wailing away. 
at these two twijes. Oh, yeah, you're going to mess with my brother. I'll show you. And, I mean, I mean, she's beating them like Mexican pinatas, man. There's candy flying everywhere. It's the most amazing thing that I've ever seen. They're just kind of, just kind of beating and just kind of moving around. Let me just, let me, let me just say this. Is I think instead of the normal Norman Rockwell idea, I think that that's probably a better picture of the church and family is that, you know, we're very, very different people. We're very different. We have different likes. We have different ideas. We have different ideas of how we think that things should be. And the truth of the matter is, man, sometimes it gets heated, and sometimes there are disagreements, and there's a lot of times tension, maybe in your small group. Maybe there's hatred. Maybe there's whatever it is, and hopefully not hatred. There are all these different types of things. But you know what? Your family. And it's amazing to me because one of the things that they've seen is it's amazing to me how people can jump from church to church so easily and, and really not understand that the people that they have, whether you like it or not, it's your family. And sometimes it doesn't go well, but we have to really work at our relationships. There are times that we hurt each other's feelings and we don't even know we did. Sometimes you have to go to somebody and say, hey, man, you hurt my feelings. Sometimes you sit there and, 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 and you know you hurt somebody's feelings and you have to go and you have to say, listen, I, I was wrong to be able to do this. You know what's amazing? The only difference I can see between family and friends is the whole blood water thing, right? And you wonder why in the world are people still sticking with their family? Why are they doing that? And you heard the phrase, you know, blood is thicker than water. You sit there and go, why in the world would you put up with that? Because blood is thicker than water. Because blood is thicker than water. What it means is Every believer in Jesus Christ in this church has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to redeem not only you, not based on because you did something or you earned something or you're inherently better than anybody else, but by his sheer grace, that blood covers you. And what unites us is the blood of Jesus Christ. We work it out as family. You know, for some of you, maybe you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you sit there and go, I don't think I'm a part of that family. You can be. If you repent from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins to satisfy the wrath of God that was pent up for you because of your rebellion towards him. And you will believe in him completely and fully. The Bible says that God will save you. Maybe that's where you are today. But maybe... We're also in a place today where we sat there and said, you know what? The truth of the matter is, is I see that there is a church. I really didn't know what it is, but I understand how I need to respond to it in light of what it is now. I know I need to be active. I know I need to be serving. I know I need to be giving. I can't just be out here in the fringe. I need to be a part of the body of Jesus Christ to be obedient to what it is that God has called me to be and to do. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to come and to worship you this morning. And God, I, um, I ask...